Good morning, church. Good morning, all those who have come to visit us again or for the first time. Um, are you guys praying, by the way, for me, for the coming meetings? Are you praying for each other and for those who are going to come? You know, wherever we have something planned to, uh, to draw away people from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, Satan is, is always angry. And he's already attacking and working behind the scenes, but I'm thankful that God has already won the battle against him. But in our church here in the, in the last couple of weeks, as we were planning for these meetings, we've had two accidents among our church members. We've had uh, major health problems among our church members. We've had just issue after issue arise. And so I really want to ask you to use the tools that God has given us in this battle against evil. Prayer, prayer. Pray for each other. Um, there might be someone in front of you, next to you, that really needs prayer. And I hope that you can be that person that prays for that person. Even if you don't know their name. Sometimes you could just tell, right, by a look on the face, by the heaviness of the shoulders, that something is going on. You might not know their name. Go out pray for them today. And pray for us as we begin these meetings. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our Bible series on reading through the Bible and preaching through the Bible. And today's sermon is going to be uh, based on the book of Esther. Now, this sermon obviously cannot cover the whole book of Esther, which is too large, but I'm going through the sermon based on the understanding that uh, most of you have done your Bible readings and have read the book of Esther this week. If not, it's okay. You'll still get some good nuggets along the way, and you can read it after the fact. So let's begin with a short prayer and talk about God remembers you. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing, your presence upon the preaching of the word from the book of Esther today. This I ask in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Uncertainty causes anxiety. Uncertainty causes anxiety. Do you agree with that statement? Uncertainty causes anxiety, especially when it comes to relationships. My beautiful wife, Mia, was not always my wife. Long time ago, I was at a Bible college, and she was just a young lady who was also attending. And the more time we spent together, the more I became attracted to her and her character and her person and everything about her. But that's when I started getting anxious, because when you are sure about someone else, but you're not sure about how they feel about you, it causes you great. Am I the only one that's been through this experience? I can't I'd be the only one. And so even though everyone else was saying, hey, Stephen, I think she likes you. And she would hang out with me and want to study with me and eat with me every lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the cafeteria. Because I wasn't sure this caused me anxiety. And when you're not sure, you feel like you have to do something to gain that surety that that person does like you. So I had to spend extra time in the morning doing my hair. I had to make sure that I was doing my push-ups. I had to make sure that I was dressed as nice. Because as soon as I stepped out, I didn't know if that was the moment that she was going to make up her mind if she liked me or if she didn't like me. I was under great anxiety at that time. Finally, the anxiety boiled over so much that I couldn't stand it no more, and I decided that this was going to end this day, I said. So before chapel, one evening, I took her aside and very seriously said, I need to talk to you. 
And so I sat her down and I asked the question that would quell my anxiety. Tell me, do you like me? Yes or no? <laughs> I could have written that on a little paper, right? Yes or no with a heart circle, which one? And with a big smile, she looked at me and said, yes, I do like you. And I said, I like you too. And my anxiety just came off of me like nothing. Many years later, after we were already married, she came to me and confessed something to me. She said, the very first time I saw you, the very first time I saw you, the thought came to my mind, that's the man I'm going to marry. You see, there was no doubt in her heart that she cared, liked me, and later loved me. But I was unsure about her feelings towards me, thus they caused me anxiety, and I felt like I needed to do something in order to get that sure word from her. You know, many times we are under anxiety over if God loves us. Many times people are not sure if God really cares about them. And then when you are not sure about God's love, it causes you great anxiety in that relationship. And you feel like you have to do something to earn his love, to deserve his love. You feel like if you make a mistake or an error or, or sin, that his love is withdrawn from you. Well, I'm here to let you know this morning that you should have no anxiety. You should have no uncertainty. Because before you were even born, God loved you. And God loves you unconditionally, whether you do what you think is right or whether you don't. He has loved you and has always loved you. In fact, he cannot love you any more and he cannot love you any less because he loves you perfectly. What does the beautiful passage in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 tell us? The Bible tells us in that beautiful passage that Paul wrote, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. God loves you. But you know what's another thing that causes great anxiety? It's not the question if God loves you. Because what is the opposite of love? A lot of people say hate, and maybe in some cases. But you know what I think is the opposite of love? I think it's apathy. Like, I don't care. See, when someone hates you, at least they're thinking about you. At least they have some kind of emotion towards you. But when they don't even think about you, Oh, that's very hurtful. And there is a greater danger in not knowing if God even is thinking about you, if God even remembers you, if God is silent in your life. Have you ever been forgotten before? Has someone that you thought should think about you, remember you, have you on their mind forgotten about you completely? Uh, my mother is visiting me tomorrow, 9 a.m. in the morning. I'm picking her up, and I have not let her live down the day when she forgot my birthday one year. I will, I will take that to their last moments together. 
Now it's in jest and now it's in fun. But let me tell you, it was very hurtful that day when I walked into my mom and dad's bedroom at 10 p.m. at night and let them know on August 27, that's so you don't forget either, August 27, that they had forgotten something very important. I gave them a minute or two in silence and I walked into my room. And then they realized they had forgotten my birthday. Have you been forgotten before? Maybe it's not so funny. Maybe it's been a little hurtful. And the greatest danger that we have in our relationship with God is not only that we think that his love is conditional. No, there's a greater danger that we get to a point in our life when we are struggling, when we're going through problems and challenges, when we're not getting promoted in that job and others are getting promoted before us, when we haven't found that special person, but all our friends are getting married and finding the perfect Mrs. and Mr. in their life, when other people are having answers prayer to their diagnoses and to their health, but here I am still suffering with diabetes, with this pain, with this struggle in my life. When our relationships are falling apart, sometimes we feel that maybe God is not there, that God is silent. And the greatest danger sometimes is not only believing that God's love is conditional, but believing that maybe he just has forgotten you. That is deadly to your spiritual walk in life with God. So it's so interesting that we talk about the book of Esther today, because the book of Esther is the one book in the Bible where God is not mentioned or seen explicitly in that book. I mean, you read the Bible from Genesis and Revelation, and you see God said, and God did this, and God did that, but then you come to the book of Esther, and the people are in such crisis, and it seems that God is not there. He's silent, like he has forgotten his people. But it's through the book of Esther that we learn that God remembers who? God remembers? It's up there. You can read it. God remembers you. So let's go to our, the story today that begins in the book of Numbers, chapter 24 and verse 20. Numbers 24, verse 20. If you have good glasses, you could read up there. If you don't, then you could pull out your Bible to the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 20. And the story of Esther actually begins way back on a prophecy of that prophet that turned against God, Balaam. And Balaam looked over toward the people of Amalek and delivered this message. Amalek was the greatest of the nations, but its destiny is what? Destruction. So whenever I read things like this in the Bible, we wonder, well, why? Why is God destining this nation called Amalek to destruction? And we le read in the Bible that there was a specific reason, not just disobedience, not just because they were idolatrous. Oh, because this people, well, they did something terrible. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, it says, Remember, Amalek, what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. So this is the nation of Israel that was leaving Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery. And they had all their possessions with them. They had their grandparents. They had their grandmother, children. They had their pregnant women. And they had all their things with them. And as they were marching, who usually goes in the front? Well, you don't know what you're going to see in the front. So you put the strong men in the front. You put the soldiers in the front. 
And the fastest people obviously go in the front as well. So who's in the back of the caravan? In the back of the caravan is old 90-year-old grandpa and grandma. In the back of the caravan, it's that two-year-old that needs to be carried or dragged. It's that pregnant mother who has to ride slowly on the camel or on the donkey or whatever it is. But what did this country of Amalek do when they saw the Israelite people going down the road? It says that he attacked them, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. What a terrible thing to attack God's innocent and vulnerable people. Yes, this is why they were destined for destruction. Now, Amalek came after they attacked the vulnerable and said, let's not only attack the vulnerable, let's kill all the people here. And so the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, that they came to battle the nation of Israel in the place called Rephidim. And this is where we remember this beautiful experience of Moses and Joshua working hand in hand. Joshua did the fighting, and Moses did the, the praying. It says, so Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Ur went up to the top of the hill... And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed in battle, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. You know, many times we see in churches that when people are, are worshiping in song, you see them raise their hands. Have you seen that? And sometimes it's, you know, back and forth and so forth. Well, in the Bible, you see people also raising their hands all throughout Scripture. But in the Bible, the raising of hand is a posture of prayer. A posture of prayer of calling upon the Lord in heaven. And so this teaches us a really powerful lesson. That when you are under attack in your life, when you are under the attack of the enemy, there's a twofold act that God encourages you to do. Is to push back, attack back, fight, defend yourself, do your part, but also fight on your knees. Fight on your knees to whatever is happening to you. You know, there was a, a lady who was struggling in her marriage, and we have to admit that marriages are under attack by the enemy. And uh, she was doing everything that she could to save her marriage. She was trying to go to counseling. They were watching DVDs about marriage. You know, they were asking counsel from other people, but the marriage was just not happening. She was doing her part, but that's all she was doing. Finally, she was so desperate, she realized that all her, her work, all her act was not leading to any help in the relationship. And so what she did is that she gathered people who she trusted, people at church, other women who had also been married and understand the challenges of marriages and the blessings of marriages, and they decided that every day, every day at 12 o'clock, they would all get on their knees wherever they were and pray for this marriage. You see, when we are asleep, when we are quiet, when we're not doing anything, if we pray to the Lord, he is fighting our battles for us. And the Bible says that whenever Moses prayed, what happened? They prevailed in battle. And when he, he couldn't, he was too weak and his hands went down, that they lost in battle to the point that Aaron and her had to Raise the hands of Moses. Do you have people in your life that are raising your hands up in your spiritual walk? 
Do you have people that you could go to that will be by your side, that will strengthen you in your prayer and your walk with Jesus? Some of the women are like, yeah, I do. It's easier for women sometimes. It's still hard. But men, I talk to you especially because, you know, men, we don't need the help of anybody. We're men, right? But men especially, you need other men next to you. Did you hear the special music today? How many of you like the special music of the men today? Was it nice? It was good, right? Imagine if only one of the men came up here and they started singing that song. It would have sounded kind of weak, right? Tell the truth. It would have sounded kind of weak. But when you have four or five men here singing the song, there is power in that. Men, come beside other men and you will find power in your spiritual life. Find someone that will raise up your hand when you're in the middle of your battles of life. And so the Bible tells us, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heaven. So God remembered the evil that this nation of Amalek did, and that's why he decided that this nation was destined for destruction. And so many years later, we find that God has allowed there to be a king, the first king of Israel, which was named King Saul. And one of the first missions that King Saul was given was to go do battle of the remaining descendants of Amalek. Go attack the Amalek. And the specific instruction was, don't leave anything alive, not even the animals. Completely blot out this nation. And so... The reason that God knew this was important was because Amalek, the nation of Amalek, was descendants of the nation of Esau. Do you remember Esau? Esau and Jacob. They started off as brothers. But one day Esau, hungering from the hunts, came and saw that Jacob was cooking red what? Lentils. And he said, I am starving to death. Give me some of that. And Jacob, always ready, said, if you uh, trade it for your what? Your birthrights, then I will give it to you. So he traded it for his birthright as a firstborn leader, spiritual leader of the family. Later on, when Esau was going to receive the blessing from the father of the firstborn, his brother Jacob came and dressed in the skins of animals and received the blessing instead. And so the brothers became enemies. Esau wanted to kill his brother for what he did. There was great animosity. But when they met face to face, God told Esau, don't touch him. And so they had kind of a little forgiveness. They had a little reconciliation, but there was still animosity between them. And as generations and generations of the descendants of Esau came, that hate was passed on and grew from generation to the generation to the point that where Esau was not willing to touch his brother Jacob, but the descendants of Esau, the Amaleks, were willing to kill children, elderly, the pregnant, and the weakest among them. And God knew that if this nation survived, that hate would be passed from generation to generation to generation and become stronger and worse, that they would become a vital force that can destroy the nation of Israel. And God said to the first king of Israel, you have to destroy this whole nation completely. Don't even leave their animals alive. Don't take any of their possessions. Just finish the mission I give you. So Saul attacked the nation of Amalek. 
And things were going so good, so good, that he stopped in the middle of the battle to pick up some gold, to pick up some silver, to get that nice horse, to get the nice sheep before the other soldiers. They started picking up all the things. And in fact, they even got the king and they paraded him back when God said, don't touch any of their possessions and destroy everyone. He failed the mission. Because instead of the nation being destroyed, there was descendants who ran away during the battle and survived. And many years later, and here it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. And many, many years later, in fact, a thousand years later, we find one of the descendants that survived the battle against Saul living in the nation of Persia. And the descendant of the Amaleks and the descendant of Esau was a man by the name of Haman. Haman had been passed down the hate from generation to generation to generation, the hate for the Israelite or the Jewish nation. And now we find Haman in the position of prime minister of the nation of Persia, just under the king, and with a king that was willing to listen and obey anything that he asked of him. But we also find a Jewish man working for the king called Mordecai, not in the palace, not at the side of the king like Haman, but at the door, the city gates, as we find Mordecai. And so the battle continues between these two people. Esther chapter 3 verse 2 says, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman, the descendants of the Amalekites, and then for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. So here is Haman. He thinks he's the best thing in the whole Persian empire, right? The king has even commanded that whenever he walks by, you got to bow down to him. Can you imagine what that would do for your pride? Can you imagine? I mean, wow. If every time I walked around town, people would, would tell me, oh, you know, bow down to me and honor me, I'd be, I think my head would get big. I remember when I was pastoring in the island of Guam, the island of Guam is traditionally Catholic. And uh, the priests in, in the Catholic faith are seen above the laity. And so what they would do to the priest is that every time they would meet the priest anywhere they was, they were, have you seen those pictures of people kissing the hand of the Pope in the ring? They would do that to all the priests too. They would kiss his hand. Well, I came and I'm the pastor, and people don't know the difference sometimes between a priest and a pastor. And I would come and, and greet people and meet people and say, oh, how are you? And they would grab my hand and kiss it. I mean, I had 70-year-old men bowing down and kissing my hand, and I'd be like, what are you doing? You know, no, please don't. Like, uh, well, don't I am not worthy to be honored in that way. Like, you are the, I should be, like, honoring you. You're the elderly man here. And so it was so uncomfortable that people would do that to me, but it was a custom to honor uh, the priest at that time. Well, here, the custom was to bow down. But Mordecai, the Jew, refused to bow down. 
Now, Haman could have said, you know what, I'm going to fix this problem and kill Mordecai. And that's the first thought that came to his head, to kill him. It said, Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Haman was filled with wrath. And so, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Let me translate to that. He was so angry he was going to kill Mordecai until he found out that he was a Jew. And he remembered the generational hates that had accumulated over the years. And he said, I'm not going to kill this guy alone. I'm not going to kill him alone. I am going to take this opportunity to finish the hatred between our two races and people with one blow. I'm going to win the battle for Esau and his descendants. And so he determined, instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, the people of Mordecai. Then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain alive. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. Sounds like a good deal, right? (laughs) It's like uh, these people are, you know, not obeying your commands, and the Persian laws were very important. In fact, when the Persian king wrote a decree or a law, not even he could reverse it. It was set forever. So you imagine if there was someone not following them, it was definitely something that needed to be addressed. Plus, you're going to get paid for it. Sounds great. And so in every province where this decree to kill the Jews went, the king's command and the decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now can you imagine how the Jewish people must have felt living during that time? I mean, they were living in exile. They were scattered all over the world. They were no longer living in the promised land. As they thought about the temple and how it laid in ruin, destroyed, and now the decree came down that they were all going to be killed on a certain day. How do you think they felt in relation to God that day? They felt that God had forgotten them probably. They felt like God didn't remember them. They felt abandoned. They felt alone. That all these bad things were happening and God's hand was nowhere to be seen. And I think that's something that that connects with us sometimes. I think that's something that's relevant sometimes. That maybe some of you are going through a season of silence from God that you're going through circumstances, situations, and you just feel like God is not answering your prayers. You feel like God is not there working on your behalf like you are not able to see him. And you wonder, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? Well, even though we don't always see God moving explicitly 
in our own lives, it doesn't mean he's not quietly working in the background. In the book of Esther, you don't see God explicitly. But as you read the progression of the story, you find that there are certain things that happened that couldn't have been coincidence. That there's certain things that happened that it only could have been God who worked miraculously. Sometimes God works loudly, but sometimes God works silently. And that's how trust develops. Does trust develop when God lays all the plans before us beforehand? And he says, this is what I'm going to do, exactly how I'm going to do it on this day and at this time. Trust is developed when we don't know what God is doing to deliver us, but we know that he is silently working in the background. And we are at peace when we go to sleep and we lay down because we know that God is going to help us. I uh, was working as a missionary for a few years with uh, pay that uh, couldn't cover my student loans, but uh, you know, people invented this thing called credit cards. You guys don't know about that. None of you have credit card debt, right? Don't get it, young people. Don't get it. You already have student loans. But, uh, you know, to even survive, to even eat, I had to use my credit cards as I was working as a missionary pastor. And uh, the limit for someone who has student loans and a low-paying job is $5,000. That's the most that they'll give me. They're like, that's your cutoff. And after three or four years of working as a missionary pastor, maxed out at $5,000. What do you do? I mean, what do you do, right? I, I had no... I couldn't get another credit card. No one was going to bump my pay. I didn't know what to do. But I knew that God had not forgotten me. And so I was at peace. I wasn't stressing. I wasn't scared. My wife was telling me, what are you going to do? Like, we're out of money. I said, just relax, relax. Something's going to happen. But what's going to happen? Tell me what's going to happen. I said, Something's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Don't, don't ask me for the answer. I don't have the answers. I remember that one day a, a person was at our church, and I hadn't mentioned our financial need. I had not spoken to anyone, had not said one word, not even a prayer request. And someone just came up to me and handed me a $5,000 check. This is a missionary field, right? <laughs> no one hands out checks anywhere in the missionary field. And as I opened that envelope and found the check, it was for the exact amount of all the money I owed for that credit card. Just enough to, to pay it off. But you know how good God is? Do you know how good God is? It's not only in the big things, but the little things. But even though all my credit card debt was paid off, my tennis shoes were falling apart. And you know what I found in my front door? Just another day, couple days later, brand new tennis shoes waiting for me. God had not forgotten me. He was completely silent. I mean, he could have, he could have provided $100 here, $2,000 here, you know, $300 here. No, no, no. He was silent to the very end, but he had been working all along. Do you believe that? In your challenges, in your problems, and in your struggles. Let's look at one circumstance, because there's many circumstances, and you've read the whole book of Esther, and you're an expert in the book, because you've been doing your readings this week. But let's look at one instance of how God intervened in this story. It says, despite those moments when we feel like God is absent, we can be confident that he still loves us. He still loves us. 
Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you shall, in judgment you shall condemn. The Lord is not taken by surprise by the devil's plans against you. Do you believe that? God is not caught. You are caught by surprise, but God has already been preparing the way out of those struggles because 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. You see, that way of escape has been pre-planned. God had not forgotten you. God is not silent. He has been working in the background, and he has provided a way of escape from the trouble, from the struggle, from the stress, from the problems you're having at home, at work, wherever you are. He has provided a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is providence in the life of Mordecai. Let's look at one instance how God worked in the life in the book of Esther. Esther 6.4. So the king said, who is in the court? Haman had set this decree to kill all the Jews. And it started with his hate for Mordecai. He had just come back from that great feast, the first day that Esther had set up for the king and Haman. And he felt like he was at the highest point, right? The queen had a feast and only invited him and the king. And everyone saw him as top. But there he was walking back home, and who did he see again not bowing down? Haman. Now he, uh, Mordecai, excuse me, he knew that Mordecai was going to die with the rest of the Jews later on, a few months later, because of the decree, but he was so mad that Mordecai was still not bowing that he said in his heart, I can't wait. I can't wait that long to kill this man. I'm going to do something about this. And so the Bible tells us that he went home and he told his family, listen, I went to the feast with, with the queen and I have riches and I have houses and I have power, but all that means nothing. He threw a big temper tantrum in front of his wife. I can't have any peace and happiness because one man in the kingdom won't bow down to me. Now, this is what wives can be a blessing to their husbands because sometimes they need counsel from their wives to protect them from themselves, right? Before you make a major decision, husbands, men, talk to your wife first. She knows you. She's lived with you. She knows your strengths and your weakness. She'll set you straight. But not this wife. Instead, this wife gave him the counsel. Well, what are you waiting for? Go build a great big a wooden structure to hang Mordecai tomorrow morning. And so Haman went, ordered it to be built, and early in the morning, before the sun was even out, he went to ask the king permission to kill who? To kill Mordecai. The king, that night, out of all the nights of the year, Imagine, you're a king of 120 provinces, but you can't have 10 minutes of sleep. Of all the nights of the year, he could not sleep that night. And if a king couldn't sleep, what could he have asked for? He could have asked for the best musician of the empire to come play for him, right? He could have asked for the best singer to come and sing for him. But what did he ask for for that night? For a book. And what book did he ask for? He could have asked for a book of philosophy. He could have asked for a book of poetry. 
He could have asked for, for anything, some fiction book. But of all the books that he could have asked for, he asked for a book of the history of the Persian Empire. And of all the 120 provinces that he could have asked for, he asked for the book that relates to the capital city where he lives in. And of all the pages that the reader could have opened to, he opened exactly on the page of the history of Mordecai finding a plot to kill the king and warning the king of the two men who were trying to kill him. And that night the king said, have we rewarded this man Mordecai for saving my life? And the answer was, no. Do you see God working in all those circumstances? Like, what is the coincidence of that happening? And so the king said, who is in the court that I could ask advice of how to honor Mordecai for saving my life? And who, out of all the days, was there early in the morning to ask the king to kill Mordecai? It was Haman. And so he was called in, and uh, Haman, having no idea what the king was asking about, he was called in. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest the king hang, the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So Haman came in, and the king asked, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to, to honor? Now when your head's so big... You always think when people are saying good things, it's only about you, right? It's only about you. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? When there's like an award and you think that they're going to call you, you're like, all right, I'm ready to stand up. And, and then they call someone else's name, you're halfway up. You're like, oh, I'm just, just stretching, just stretching, just stretching. So Haman thought it was his turn. And he said, hmm, the king's talking about me because who else does the king delight on? So Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. So in other words, make him look like the king, right? And on top of that, then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may, be, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. In other words, let one of the most important men of this kingdom put the robe on him and to make sure that he guides the horse along the way. I mean, I couldn't have planned this better than God planned it, you know? God was working behind the scenes here. And then parade him on the horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to, to honor. And so then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai. And he just didn't say Mordecai. He said Mordecai the, the Jew. Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king gate and leave nothing undone, all that you have spoken. And so we see then Mordecai being led by horseback, being arrayed by Haman with the king's robe. 
and calling to the street, this is what's done to the one who is honored by the king. But you know what? I think that statement was false. I think it was a little false, right? Because I think what it should really have said is, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king of kings delights to honor. Because it was the king of heaven who had set up the salvation of Mordecai, even though Mordecai had no idea the plans of God. We're out of time, but later on we know that Esther was put in the right place at the right time by God to rescue the whole Jewish nation. And at the end of the story, as the children from generation to generation celebrated the feast to remember this day, I believe the parents would sit around and they would tell the story, and at the end of the story, they would tell their children, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how it seems the enemies are against you and about to destroy you, never doubt, never forget that God loves you and God remembers you and that he is working even when you don't know. And I think that we need to hear that as well. Because we, we, have big problems. We have big challenges. We have big struggles. But we have a bigger and greater God whose plans are better than we can imagine. And so, God has not forgotten you. How could he forget you? You are the most important person in his life. My mother is coming, uh, like I said, Monday, and have you ever been forgotten in the airport before? <laughs> that happened to me once, too. I don't know. People keep forgetting me. I guess I'm not that special. Um, I was coming in to Los Angeles, and um, I had some friends that were supposed to pick me up. You know how it is when you're flying. You're like eight hours in the plane, and you finally get down, and every, you find your luggage, and you come out, and what are you expecting? Someone to be like, hey, there you are, and you see all the other people getting hugged and greeted, and you're just like, hey, wait a minute. It's been uh, 20 minutes. No one's here. And then you wait an hour, because it's Los Angeles. There might be an accident or traffic, and then you make the call, and you say, uh, uh, I don't see you here. Oh, I forgot. Was that today? Oh, I'm so sorry. I totally forgot. To, uh, do you know the number for Uber? Do, can you call them to pick you up instead? But uh, when my mom's coming, you can better bet that this son is going to be an hour early waiting for her, right? And uh, maybe my daughters are going to make little signs, you know, welcome, Grandma. And even before she gets past security, that's how Hispanic families are, right? It's like you see them coming, you rush to hug them, and the security guards are like, this is restricted area, you can't go past it. We're like, forget it, we love grandma, you know? And they're almost ready to arrest us for crossing two feet over the line. And uh, we're going to celebrate her so much. We missed her. We missed her so much. Haven't seen her in over a year. Because when you know that God remembers you, you're going to remember him. And you're going to look forward to seeing him face to face. 
If you believe that God's love is conditional, he has forgotten you, you're not looking forward to his second coming. But when you know that God loves you unconditionally, and God remembers you and is fighting for you even when you can't see it, then you're going to want to celebrate his coming. And that's why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, because I can't wait to run towards Jesus with my sign, welcome back, I missed you, but I know you have not forgotten me, and I have not forgotten you either. How many of you want to have that same experience? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of knowing through the stories of the Bible that we are never forgotten. Please, Heavenly Father, give us the trust and the faith to know that in moments where we feel like you are silent, that you are working for us in ways that are better than we could imagine. And let this instigate a desire to see you, receive you, when you come back soon and very soon. I ask this in your name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us stand for a closing song, friends.